We're the product, not of a garden, but of an impact, an extinction event. We're the children of the crater, the bodies produced by collision and eruption. The well body and the Edenic utopia function similarly. They are advertised as universal, but are always partial. They are always produced by some other being's dystopia. Wellness is built from unwellness. Utopia depends on and produces dystopia. Blood pressure stabilizers, diabetic drugs, and antidepressants keep our bodies up, upright while also polluting river water. A medication is produced by context, and no substance we produce stays in its correct place for long. It leaks physically and ontologically, producing hells when it was created to stabilize anthropocentric normativity. All is pharmacon. Contextual, leaky, slipping between potion and poison unpredictably. For beings that date the beginning of the universe to a bang, should we not... Welcome back to the Sounds of Sand podcast. Today we welcome the magical Sophie Strand to the episode. And we present two recent occasions where Sophie connected with the sand community on today's episode. The first is from her community conversation with Zaya and Maurizio Bonazzo, the co-founders of Sand, which took place in December of 2022. And that community conversation was called We Must Risk New Shapes. And the second is an excerpt of Sophie's appearance with Bio Akumalafe for his four-part webinar the Wandering, Winding Way of the Wound, in which Sophie reads a story she recently wrote called A Ghost Story. And if you'd like to connect further with Sophie Strand, there's a new course over on the Science and Non-Duality website that's called The Body is a Doorway, which is a four-part series with Sophie. And you can find out more at scienceandnonduality.com, and we'll have links to that in the show notes. And before we begin, I just want to say thank you to all the supporters on Sand and all the people sending us feedback about the podcast. And you can reach out to us at podcasts at scienceandnonduality.com. And the supporters through Sand membership make this podcast possible. So if you'd like to support the podcast, please consider becoming a member. And you can have access to our library of hundreds of community conversations and other content through the Sand Past of live webinars and talks and summits that we've hosted over at scienceandnonduality.com and get access to upcoming community conversations like with Tyson Yonkapura, Bioakamalafe, Cynthia Bourgeau, Mara Zapatera, just to name a few. So head over to our website, scienceandnonduality.com and click Join Sand up in the right-hand corner. And so today's guest, Sophie Strand, is a disabled writer based in the Hudson Valley who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. But it would probably be more authentic to call her a neo-troubadour animist with a propensity to spin yarns that inevitably turn into love stories. Give her a salamander and the stone and she'll write you a love story. Sophie was raised by house cats, puffballs, possums, raccoons, and an opinionated crippled goose. In every neighborhood she's ever lived, she's been known as the walker. And she believes strongly that all thinking happens interstitially between being, ideas, differences, and mythical gradients. We present to you Sophie Strand on today's episode of the Sounds of Sand podcast presented by Science and Non-Duality. 
Welcome to science and non-duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective consciousness. Being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Sophie? Thank you for being with us. <laughs> Thank you for Welcome. being with us. Come and well, that was such a generous um, introduction, Sai and Maurizio. And I think meeting you guys and physically meeting you was one of the best parts of this past year. So thank you. Mm. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm on the Mohican Talk, the river that flows both ways, like right on it, the Hudson River, on the land of the Matsilanape people where um, the Ashokan Wars happened, where there were genocides and um, that have been erased from the history books. So I'm on that land. I just want to honor that, that there's that unspoken, not unspoken, but unwritten tragedy that is fermented in the soil that yeah. I breathe in every time I breathe in and speak to you. Um, I'm going to start with a short reading and then we're going to go into the more, the, the jazz, the conversational jazz that will follow. Um, but this piece is called, We Must Risk New Shapes. We must risk new shapes. The shore is a snakeskin of shifting viridescent sheen. The tidal pool's green liveliness singles sun hunger. Convula ruscofensis, otherwise known as mint sauce worm, is a phototropic being, no longer dependent on oxygen to live. The worm eats the sun through the photosynthesizing algae platymonis that has infiltrated and stained its sheer flesh permanently green. The fusion of worm body and plant hunger so confounded the Englishman Jay Keeble, who first identified them, that he dubbed the worms plant animals. He called this fusion an infestation and parasitism. But as we learn more and more, about our own reliance on our microbiome and the ways in which symbiosis drives biological novelty, the antagonistic terminology of parasitism and infection seem less and less applicable to these intra-bodily negotiations. What is happening between the worm, worm and the algae? The algae live in the worm like an ecosystem repurposing the uric acid produced as waste by the worm into their own nourishment, dying and lovemaking and community building all within the bounds of another body. These algae then leak their own photosynthetic nourishment into the body of the worm, allowing the worm to subsist on translated sunlight. So tightly coupled is this relationship that the worm's mouths have atrophied and are no longer used following the hatching of the worm larva. The mouth then is a symbol for a more desperate time, the time before union, the time when the worm was just a worm, nothing else. When do you like your body? I like my body when it is with your body. It is so quite new a thing, muscles better and nerves more, writes the poet E.E. E. Cummings. Many of us like our bodies best as hybrid, Body plus lover, body plus baby, body plus huge body of water. We forget that it is not the wings of the bird that allow for flight, but the bird plus the lifting air. 
Where does flight live? In the wings or the air? Or interstitially, between the two? Our bodies become pleasurable, become livable and lovable, not alone, but through material interaction. Isn't it strange then that the thing we fear most medically and personally is physical trespass? We fear the infection, the parasite, the physical breach. Body plus is the calculus that allows for pleasure and flight and birth and digestion, but it is also the opening into more ambiguous communions. Those with long-term illness and with a legacy of trauma understand that hybridity is not something you order off the menu. It arrives and makes a home in your body. Suddenly, you are more than you ever thought you could be in ways both terrifying and curious. I'm reminded of my favorite mythic couple, Tristan and Isolde. They who were two and divided became one and united. No longer were they at variance, they shared a single heart. They were both one in joy and sorrow, writes Gottfried von Strasberg in his 13th century version of the Tristan and Isolde romance. The two lovers, initially divided by the sea and by conflicting loyalties, suspended in a boat between their warring countries are alchemically fused by accidentally ingesting a love potion. I have long loved Tristan and Isolde and its many textual variations. And I have always felt that the romance, although superficially heterosexual, is decidedly non-heteronormative, lichenized. Across different versions of the legend, the lovers are not portrayed as practicing courtship or as falling in love. Instead, they are fused, chemically bonded, and afterwards they are not a couple. They are a single being. That, for the sake of narrative tension, gets stretched and twisted only so that it can violently, dramatically snap back into its original cohesion. A man, a woman, a woman, a man, Tristan is old, is old Tristan, Gottfried writes, suggesting that what has been created is not a romantic union, but a single polygendered, multi-named entity. In an age when the Eurocentric fiction of individuality has deranged our ability to tend to the environments within which we are embedded, it seems important to soften our boundaries, intellectually and bodily. Horrified in the wake of two world wars, poet George Oppen mused, obsessed, bewildered by the shipwreck of the singular, we have chosen the meaning of being numerous. Perhaps, realizing that we are constituted by webs of relationship, we must see the singular human species as a sinking ship. We must jump overboard into being numerous, into being other beings, into being quite differently. Our very nucleated cells are the product of an ancient intrabodily merger between two bacteria. Evolutionary biologist Lynn Margolis upended linear narratives of evolution when she demonstrated that we are the product of a transversal intimacy, the symbiogenetic fusion of two different prokaryotes. She wrote, in the great cell symbioses, those of evolutionary moment that led to organelles, the act of mating is, for all practical purposes, forever. While we may congratulate our prokaryotic ancestors on their risky decision to half digest each other's bodies, I can't imagine the original union was comfortable. But as species die out by the hundred every day, we may need to fuse our bodies to other bodies. 
Symbiosis is often a survival tactic. Species impinged by climatological pressures and scant resources try to eat each other, fail, and at some point along the way, begin to cope become. The narrative is neither neat nor heartwarming. It is fraught and it often fails, but the other option is starvation and extinction. The singular species is a shipwreck. Symbiosis is always a risk and it has a cost, the shape you recognize, the familiar boundaries of your own mind. Life is a process of addition, a concatenation of matter. Even your solitary self must inhale air. Where does life live, in the air or your lungs? In a time when safety has become the goal of psychology and political discourse, paired with the talismanic abstraction of boundaries, I want to offer that becoming new is never safe. Survival is never safe. It is always a breach, a break in the skin. It is a leap across the abyss. It is the moment you leap into another body. I am a body plus. A body plus trauma, plus illness, plus pollen, plus spores, plus caretakers and friends and loved ones and wild kin. I am interested in the material incursions that are irreversible, that stain me green, that atrophy my mouth, that teach me how to eat sunlight, how to survive at all costs. Here, world, let me burn the bridge to my old body on my way into your body. I am ready to risk new shapes. Thanks. Wow. <laughs> So beautiful. Each sentence requires hours of digestion. You go with flawlessness from one to the other. I feel like I'm running behind a train that I can never catch. But I arrive. But I still am arriving at the destination. I thought I went on the train, even though I ran. I mean, it's like insane. Incredible. Thank you. Thank you for sharing and. At any time, we invite you to bring your questions as well. We want this to flow so it doesn't have to have a rigid structure, our conversation with Sophie. So just yes. bring your questions. And you have something that came through the conversation? To me, is the, the essence of the fact that the human being is not, we, we talk about individuality when you said where is the energy in the air or in the lungs, right? Yeah. Where is the life of vital force? We are made of 98% of bacteria, virus, and, and microbes. microbes. <laughs> I mean, Whatever but, we but, call but I'm me. I mean, we are a constant, like, orgy of, like, a big party of creatures in us mm -hmm. creating a, our sense of self and... Yes. And yet, like we have what we call healing spaces. Like when you go to our hospitals, it's all about sterilizing, isolating, yeah. isolating and disrupting any kind of rationality. We've gone so far in the direction of that kind of individual healing that is outside of any relational uh, network of connections. Yeah. And I mean, it feels like we've gone in the wrong, I mean, wrong. Yeah, uh, in a very, in bizarre, a very bizarre way to seek healing in a way. Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. yeah. So it, it, feels, it feels like, well, you know, if you realize, so my favorite metaphor is the spider in its web. So extended cognition researchers at MIT have been showing, there's new research every day, pretty much, that spiders' cognition is not in its brain or its body. 
it extends into its web. And if you damage part of the, the web, it acts as if it has it had a stroke. Wow. And so human beings are like this. Most animals have some amount of extended cognition. And what I like to think is that because we are self, only self through other, through a constant intaking of otherness to very materially, metabolically build our bodies, we are, you know, our minds are not in our heads. Minds are territories we inhabit that multiple beings inhabit. And so if you're trying, you know, that's why the therapeutic model sometimes seems too small for me. Like if a mind is a territory that many beings are inside of, how can two human beings in a sterile room solve the problem <laughs> that is constituted by a whole web of wild kin? Um, that, you know, I sometimes like to think that if you're having a bad day, perhaps it's because part of your web has been frayed somewhere else. Perhaps a forest has been had 200 trees cut down and that's part of your extended brain, your extended body. Um, and that's what agonizing to realize, to wake up to, and also very empowering because then all of a sudden, you know, I have an incurable illness. There's no pill that if you give it to my quote unquote individual body will fix it. But what if healing didn't have to happen inside of this skin silhouette? What if that happened in my vasculature of relations, my web of kin? What if it happened to something else and then flowed back into me? So it's a way of you know, widening, creating a more generous ecosystem of where ecos where healing can happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And and recognizing a greater intelligence, right? That I was just thinking uh, for me, I got something, a flu or whatever that I felt so low last night. And I was thinking about our conversation and this exactly this topic is like, maybe there is a greater intelligence that is coming through my body. I did not find the time to rest is, is giving the it knows better than I do my individual, you know, to, to, yeah. okay, you have to sit down and rest and you, it's not comfortable. It's very, uh, and that's where ship shifting, uh, happens when, um, new ways of relating, of being even from a low energy. And, you know, probably a lot about that when our usual ways are disrupted of being and relating, yeah, I was talking to scientists who studies patterns of nature and how they get stronger over time. You know, how how a human is always born and develops as a human from these initially omnipotent cells. How do we always achieve, you know, the human morphology when each cell begins as like a potentiality to form anything? Um, and I asked, well, then how do you change that? How, how, how do you break the patterns? What if the patterns are bad? And he said, it's when there's a block when something can't happen, when there's a disability, that's when the pattern shifts. That's when it has to experiment with something else. And of course we can think about these experimentations as disability or as, as being wrong, as being non-normative in our brains and our bodies. But what they really are, I think, are invitations to experiment with other ways of being. And for me personally, so I, I'm very disabled. I mean, I go in and out of di different moments of time and di needing different types of care, but I always need a caretaker. And so I'm always exiled from this idea of wholeness and rugged individualism. I'll never be self-sufficient. And yet, what if that invitation was a way of making me related, of inviting in relationality and community, that, that, that 
opening was actually a way of building community. Um, and I sometimes think our disabilities, our experimentations with these blocks are ways of creating more risky, more generative um, relationships and collaborations with people and with beings we wouldn't necessarily choose to interact with if we were well and normal bodied. Right, right. Yeah, and also the relationship to discomfort and pain. There is yeah. something about our our modern society that we are just allergic to discomfort and anything yeah. healing. It means comfort, and but uh, yeah, it, it, yeah, and, and, there and, is an addiction yeah. to that. And healing is reducing the pain, right? That's been seen. Like that's the first thing you do. And maybe the pain is like the trail we need to follow to wherever we need to to take us. Um, yeah, I sometimes think about, you know, if your limb goes numb, it's numb. I think sometimes we've we've conflated, you know, wellness, the lack of pain with actual disassociation and numbness. And the truth is when you're waking back up to your full aliveness, your full related interstitial co-being, you know, when, when your limb comes back away, it's going to prickle, it's going to hurt. So we need to move through that moment where where everything hurts really badly. Yeah, it's there's no other way. It seems like we really need to face that. And I wonder also if you see that in a collective way as well. That is, it's collectively we need to feel and and see and meet those discomfortable discomfortable stories or history or places where things became sterilized in a, or, or fixed in a specific shape. And those are that, yeah. Yeah, no, I just want to ask, um, please, yes. if you have a question, raise your hand by the raise your hand. And ideally you have a video, Stacey, I'm asking you if you have a video, because we like to see your face and the interactions were more rich. And, and I wanted to add another thing connected to this. When the documentary we were going around, remember there was, a, I don't remember which, but said, when somebody's sick in this community, in this indigenous community, the community gather all around and people try to understand, well, we are sick and try to understand how can we heal. There is no individual illness. Well, so this is what I think about a lot. So I'm really interested in the fact that across cultures, dance and communal dance and trance states were ways of moving stuck energy. Um, and and um, approaching certain kinds of ills, be they spiritual, psychic, or personal. And that these experiences were never about an individual. They were about a communal experience where the energy of the pain was dispersed through a concatenation of bodies. And sometimes I think that trying to hold trauma in one body doesn't work. You need to grab onto 10 other bodies so you can all work it together. You know, you can, so you become like the hand as part of a greater body. I really believe, and not in an abstract metaphorical way, that dance is the way to do this. Very, very simply that we need to dance more and touch more so that we can begin to feel things disperse. You know, when you have real, a lot of pressure on like one um, beam of wood, it can break. But if you have a lot of other beams, suddenly the pressure is distributed. So how can we create actual bodily situations where we can distribute pressure together? Mm. 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 How? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, it's, a, it's an inquiry. It doesn't really, yeah, it's not a I'm not sure. Answer. This is something I'm looking for right now as we, you know, I don't know if we're coming out of COVID, but as people are treating COVID as having been done, 
um, and we're gathering more, I've been thinking about how do we create, you know, I'm not super interested in like festival culture and, um, you know, in a, in a kind of, because I also think that's been overly conflated with this idea of the individual healing, that everything needs the medicine rather than how do you Beautiful. be the medicine? You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm a little allergic to the psychedelic renaissance, you know, let's first learn how to be medicine before we become these capitalistic machines that are always extracting the heroic yes. dose so we can change and optimize ourselves. Um, so I'm much more interested in like in your community of people who aren't chosen or ordered off the menu. How can you gather your neighbors, your people to eat food and to dance together? I don't know what that looks like, but I'm trying to think about it in my own community right now. I remember in France a few years ago, going down on a neighborhood in a little town and everybody brings their pot and sits on the streets and share a meal. That's, yeah. that, that is a celebration. That is yeah. a way of it being, it's, it can be as simple as that. Yeah. I think so. I think that food is, food is the connective tissue of life and sharing food is one of the oldest customs across cultures. It's a way of, of breaking down differences. You do just, we all need to eat. We all need to eat food that probably is grown where we are. Can we all learn how to do that? Can we dance together? Can we garden together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how is it, I mean, again, we live in the Western, in a modernized world. It's so much about rationality, about understanding, (laughs) about linearity. And in your own journey, you're confronted with something that is not rational, is not something you can fix. It's not something you can even understand. Like, what is, what have you learned from from that um yeah I so to offer a little background to people here who might not know me or my story I am the survivor of very intense early childhood abuse and I have a series of genetic issues that are incurable and are causing my body to break down at a much higher faster pace than normal bodies and there's no cure um so there are ways in which I've been exiled from healing narratives that can where you get better (laughs) where you heal. And then, you know, and as someone who's tried every trauma therapy there is knowing that the trauma probably makes the physical issues worse. I've never been able to properly integrate it or complete it. So I'm stuck in this journey, not stuck. I'm in a journey with no arrival. And what I realized is there isn't any arrival. Arrival is extinction. You know, and and people say like, we're evolving. Well, every being evolves into extinction. You, what you really want to do is get into your body in this present moment, embraced by the future and by the past, by your ancestors, by your future progeny and feel that present moment and not try to progress. That progression is always leading off the edge of the cliff. And so for me, I've I've tried to get okay with being a compost heap, with decaying, with not progressing, with moving backwards. And with moving backwards as a way of seeing something different than other people. That sometimes we need people in our culture who are seen from a slightly different vantage point. Wow. Wow. We bring one of my favorite lines I heard you to say, I want to become good compost. That's Yeah, I am decaying. So, you know, compost is gross, but it's good soil that grows many other things. So if I'm breaking down, something I think about a lot is I have lots of stories I want to write. I probably won't live long enough to write them all. But if I create an idea compost heap, maybe other people can grow them. That Mm -hmm. the idea of the individual author is a product of written culture. It's recent. 
that for most of human history, right. morality was relational and community. Storytelling. Based. Yeah. Yeah. A story belonged to a community over millennia. It was didn't belong to a singular author. Right. So. And it belonged to a place. We were just filming in Hawaii and we met this old Hawaiian storyteller. And he's like, I can't tell you the story here. We have to go to the place where the story belongs. <laughs> this is where the story has been told yeah. for generations. So, so yeah. stories have also their environmental... Yeah. Yeah. It drove us for three hours to go in a specific place and on the coast, on a specific tip of, of the coastline to tell us that specific story. Because yeah. this story is to be told here. I cannot tell you this story. No, no story is context dependent. I exactly. always say story is like is like mycorrhizal fungi. You can't take mycorrhizal fungi out of their ecosystem and have them make sense. They don't have like a body plan. You pour them into a forest and they become a map of relationships. A good story is a map of relationships in a specific place. So you have to go to that place to see all the trees, the elementals, the beings that are part of that story. That's wow, it, that's yeah. It. Makes total yeah. sense. Yeah. And wow. I, I just wonder like, okay, we, again, learning about indigenous cultures how different they relate and the the language doesn't speak to domination doesn't speak to linearity everything is cyclo and and yet in our modern society everything has become rational and linear and how much of that has to do with raising our gods above life and um yeah. and being disconnected from life being disconnected from rationality like what what are your um, there's you know there's so many there's so many origins to our current euro patriarchal mess you know there's so many we can we can we can tell so many different stories about how it happened and they're interesting but the desire for a singular origin is a product of Europatriarchal <laughs> epistemology. So we have to complicate that. There we go. That cause and effect idea of linear time and progression and being able to map and see everything. But, you know, I do personally think that hmm, I'm going to try and explain something. So this type of thinking is not global. It comes from a very particular point. And then it, through colonialism, through the tentacular tentacular materialities of colonialism spreads. But it begins in the Mediterranean basin and Europe. And it begins this, this moment where Platonism, the split between mind and matter that gets theologically re-articulated as spirit and, and body, and then re-articulated again in Cartesian mind and matter. <laughs> um, so people think that, you know, material reductionism is like not theological. It's just Christian theology re-articulated. <laughs> um, that, you know, modern scientistic thinking is very Christian, actually, um, problematically so. And so this, this schism, this, this break happens at a moment in time at the end of the Bronze Age, as far as I can see, when there are massive volcanic eruptions, there are huge climatological shifts, there's huge droughts, and there's social chaos, and the, all the five major empires collapse. It's called a collapse. There are a lot of theories about what, why it happened. What seems clear is that populations experienced massive genocide and die off and they were dislocated from their land. So there was huge cultural body trauma. What happens in a body that's traumatized? One experiences to dis disassociate your mind and your body split. So I sometimes see, see the, think that this whole 2000 years, 3000 years is a trauma response that gets rearticulated as culture. 
to a very understandable moment in time when a people experience radical trauma and need to figure out in their spiritual stories and their narrative stories, how to understand that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, so beautiful. Thank you for that reminder that, you know, how we search for the single explanation and one point that will put the things together so we can actually understand, but it's so much, there's so much more freedom in living in what you're inviting us in a way that there might not be cause and effect. And it's all, it's complex and, and, and really learning to appreciate the complexity versus the singular one pointed um, explanation. But but I I have to pause because what you just said, the story of, because I'm always wondering, where did you start? When did you start that we became colonialist, uh, patriarchal, destroying the, the, our neighbor? Where did you start it? And you just phrased it in a way so cleanly and clearly that I need to stop you there. So <laughs> I have to, 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 to drink it. I'm a boy, I'm a man, I'm slow, you know? So I need to, I don't have the capacity of the two of you. He's like, wow. I'm like, you framed, I mean, okay, paused enough. I had a friend tell me that, that, that he said that there was one suggestion he had for me and that it was that I slow down and let people digest what I'm saying. (laughs) No, we actually received an email. I said, can you tell Sophie to speak slower? (laughs) Like, no, because this flows through you. That's how it feels. It's not like you're, that's spirit. And then we take it and it takes time to digest it. That's our, our own own problem, problem, but we, I'm, I'm digesting you in time. Oh my God. One of the amazing things about the digital world is that we have recordings and then we can go back and rewatch things. Because I know personally, I sometimes will go back to watch a talk like multiple times. Um, yes. So I think, you know, we can problematize what, what, you know, technology is doing, but it's also, it's material. It is nature. It's, it's creating mycelial connectivity outside of dominant paradigms. So yeah, it, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. 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 Wow. When you said nature, we were asking, what's the word in Hawaiian for nature? And uh, (laughs) like, we don't have a word for nature. There is no such a thing, right? Because, you know, the indigenous languages, we're not separate from, we're not at the center of life and we're not separate from the elements. It's like, I am speaking now through the wind or the wind is speaking through me. Then there's no, is that interplay that... That yeah. has existed for, you know, 50, 60,000 years, that kind of rationality that um, hasn't been disrupted until colonization. That, yeah. Um, and still there. And I actually think that it's still living in our landscapes. So we see in many cultures that the landscape is a mnemonic device. And it's actually part of how, how you remember, that the land remembers. I was talking with one of my favorite writers, Monken McGann, who writes about Irish indigenous language and how it is embedded, environmentally embedded in landscape, like song lines. Mm, yes. And how, you know, you don't have to, sometimes like men, most of the people have been killed or their language has been erased. The land remembers for you. That if you start to dialogue with the land, it will have information for you about how to begin that dialogue again. Um, that, you know, right where you are, even if you're in a city, 
There's soil deep under the concrete. There's land that wants to be speaking. The whole world is full of voices that are talking. We have to actually, something I think about all the time is sensory gating and neural pruning, which is that we receive so much sensory stimuli all the time that if we experienced it all, we'd go mad. Um, But it used to be in indigenous cultures and cultures that were more environmentally sustainable and responsive, that that gating happened where you began to homogenize your reality and your expectations and take out other things. So you could like hear your name in a crowd had to do with reading the environment with seeing, with distinguishing one plant and a sea of plants, one shift of wind through the leaves, smelling something that let you know that there was danger Now, the way we neurally prune ourselves has to do with culture and with anthropocentric expectations. So what we're tuning out is the world. That takes effort. So sometimes I want to say that it's actually not about effort. We don't have to like strive hard to hear these other voices or wake back up to them. It's actually about relaxing. Mm -hmm. Can we relax into madness, like a little bit of madness and hearing voices? What would it be to let ourselves hear voices again? Right, right. Oh. Or the smell on the street or the wind, yeah. the sound of the wind. It's sometimes it's yeah. just that to, yeah. to shift from the... We strive to be present. So we go to 10 workshops a week to be present. Right. <laughs> right. 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 I know. Just shut up and listen, right? No, but <laughs> actually, I've been th- so I've been reading about how children have this type of thinking that's much more suited to solving riddles and experimenting and seeing options and puzzles that people can't see is called lateral thinking, where you make connections that aren't expected. Actually, one way that adults get this back is by drinking. So there is a theory that we've, that drinking has been part of our evolutionary um, adaption because it sometimes lets us think like children again. Um, But I was thinking about lateral thinking, which is the most experimental, novel type of thinking. You know, you can see the answer to the riddle. You can see the way out when all the doors are closed. You get it not by striving really hard, but by shutting down your your central your your um, central cortex. Um, You you do it actually by kind of relaxing. Right. It's like a kind of like gestalt consciousness. Right. Yeah. Which. In the past, a lot was happening for different cultures through dance, through rhythm, like this, mm-hmm. where we would remove the frontal cord, the the the, the, the rational, and just drop into yeah. trance. Trance, and yeah, trance was an important part of the the practice. Any kind of practice in in our ancestors, uh, a rhythm, sinking our hearts through rhythm was. Yeah, a way to exactly. communicate and and feel safe you know that that is a safety when yeah. you know it's like it's not just my heart beating but it's part of the pulse mm. of life and of everything yeah. that's around me
think, Sophie, would you like to read something at the end? You mentioned you had a prayer, maybe something. Mm, yeah, I have a prayer that I've done for my courses. Let me see if I can get it up. It's easy to um, find if, if it's yeah. in the meantime, in case somebody has any, yeah, any lack of memory, where to find, remember, read this book. And if as somebody said that English is not my first language, then get the book. You can read at your own speed. Right. Yeah. So that's the beauty of our transmission. You can. And I just wanted to mention that we will be offering a four part meeting with Sophie in February, starting February, fifth. I think, 5th. 5th. The body yeah. is a doorway. And that will be another incredible. We'll have time, four we'll times four to times. meet with Sophie and just be yeah. in this space together. So. I wanted to and, put the word this, perhaps this will be this will be an invitation to that because this is kind of my invitation that we always say at the start of things I do um yeah so it's called a risky promise together we vow to work by addition not subtraction honoring that bad stories and good stories can meet and intermingle and breed new microbial possibilities in the compost heap We acknowledge that colonialism is wielded by empire, or Christianity is wielded by empire, has acted like an antibiotic, killing off all other narratives in the cultural gut. We take this responsibility into our body, like an oyster mushroom, learning how to digest radioactivity. We thread our metabolisms together to learn how to eat toxicity. We seek a probiotic of stories to cure narrative dysbiosis a polyphonic meshwork of voices that refuses to reduce itself to European harmonics. We strive loudly, wetly, jointly for generative clamor. The world is a simultaneity of differences and we enjoy the gradient that occurs when we place ourselves alongside otherness. The gradient between the summit and the valley draws this stream into being. We stream into being. We let our nuclei flow from the top of the food chain down into the pinprick mind of the tiniest nematode. We practice hyphal flexibility and narrative multiplicity when confronted with dualisms. We always pick both and then we ask for more. When we are incorrectly confined to a fictional self, we affirm that we are a we. We split into a thousand branching fungal hyphae. We do not get stuck. We do not sterilize. We do not exclude. Neither do we apologize for or resurrect bad beliefs. We mulch them with leftovers and rainwater. We add them onto the compost heap. We fuse and fork and explore and forage. We make slapdash compromises with other species. We speak grass badly. We speak tree badly. We speak ocean badly. But we do not stop asking questions. We ask, what ails the woodpecker? What ails the willow? What ails the ancestors? We have no heroes, only hydra heads. We do not need a thread through the labyrinth. We are the labyrinth. We align with the minotaur. We are ecstatic in our insolvability, our refusal to be navigated by vanquishing heroes. We honor bothness. We honor bodiness. We trust that the best collaborations are permanent and involve the co-sharing of bodies. We risk losing touch with our old stories. All hail the overlap. All hail the rot. We are ready to escape the singular. Wow. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so yes, much. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I hope you join us in February for, yeah. for more time with Sophie. And again, Sophie, where do people read you on daily basis? Like Facebook, <laughs> I know you post often. Your I blog. have a Substack. 
And I post there for free and also a paid one with more private content that's more vulnerable. You can, of course, choose to do whatever feels right. I post on Instagram a lot. Um, I'm on Facebook. I have my book that just came out and I love to be bothered. So come bother me. <laughs> this is the book. And sophistrends.com is also your website. Right. And book. yeah, so... Thank you so much you. for this time. Thank you so much. Beautiful. Such a, I don't know, I'm always... Delightful, Jersey. Such a delight. <laughs> I mean, I feel energized, completely confused, and perfectly aligned. <laughs> aligned. Aligned. I feel, but I feel aligned in my confusion, right? I feel like, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> I, I track it, you got the plate, and I, I'm, but I'm functioning perfectly. It's so beautiful. So we adore you, Sophie. You're yeah. amazing. Thank you. It goes right back to you guys. <laughs> you all. Oh, my God. And now the second part of our conversation, Sophie in conversation with Bio Akumalafe. As a very short introduction for people who don't know I, who I am, I'm a writer, mostly a compost team with other people. Um, and I stand adjacent to the constricting box of childhood abuse and incurable connective tissue disease. Those are things, those are costumes I could wear, boxes I could step into, but I, I like to be adjacent to them. I like to stand kind of to the side a little bit, looking at them, but not quite fully entering them. Um, and just as Bio said, to live the question, and Rilke says, to live the question rather than try to answer it. And I think that kind of speaks to this idea of to body the question to, and flesh it rather than trying to end it. Um, so also Kim, thank you. I think you articulated something that what I'm going to share is really, really focused on and has become, I think the most important theme question in my life, which is the difference between healing and surviving and the kind of healing we're doing right now might not help us survive. <laughs> and the kind of trauma that we're trying to normalize might actually be a survival technique that helps us. And that survival and healing are perhaps opposed right now. Um, and what you're talking about is this graceful, complicated, non-pathological way of surviving. I also have a go bag. <laughs> I have for years. I think it's the childhood trauma, which is the sense of you always have to be ready to go. It has my EpiPens, all of those things that prosthetically make me me. Um, they keep me alive, you know, my body plus. I'm not just my body. I'm kept alive by relationships and by medicines and other people and chemicals. And, you know, like I'm a cyborg. I'm like, I was thinking, Bio, when you brought up that story, like I oftentimes feel like I peel back my skin and I see the machinery. Um, but I decided because we are close to that time of spirits, you know, in some Celtic and European mythology to share a ghost story that I've written for everyone. And it is called Healing, a Ghost Story. Just begin. Okay. The banging enters my dream before it wakes me. The thump of a woodpecker's beak probing the oak tree. In the dream, I'm in my childhood home looking down from the porch at the rotten oak, knowing the woodpeckers eating grubs out of the white rot inoculated wood. Is the tree dead if it is full of so much life, so much food? Is it maybe more alive now, full of beak wounds, teeming with grubs and threads of fungi? Bang. 
bang. The dream dissolves like snow on a hot stone and I'm out of bed, groggily peering through the door viewer at whoever is demanding entrance into my home at three in the morning. Her face is flush, appearing pinker still in contrast to her platinum hair. Her lipstick is smudged into something resembling a scar. Come on, let me in, I forgot my keys. Your keys? This is my apartment. I don't even know you. And yet I recognize her. And yet I slowly open the door and let her in, gagging as I'm hit by the strong stench of saccharine alcohol and vanilla themed perfume. Ugh. She throws her bag in the corner. It took you forever. But in fact, it takes me only a second to realize that this is not a stranger. This wild, unceremonious invader is, although an inch taller than me, although stinking drunk, although pinker, plushier, bigger all around, as if she'd received a second longer attached to the balloon pump, is most decidedly me. I need carbs or I'll be a mess tomorrow, she's mumbling as she begins to disassemble my kitchen, drawer by drawer. I trail behind her, dumbstruck. She finds a stale box of gluten-free crackers I bought for a dinner party and starts to eat them without a plate, a corona of crumbs collecting around her feet. I usually take my shoes off, I say, looking at her boots, but she's cackling with her mouth full. I usually take my shoes off, she parrots me in a dopey voice. Oh, shut up with that so sanctimonious bullshit. You're even less fun than I expected. Look, I ask, what do you need? Why are you here? I need to sleep. And then I need to do this article on dating for tomorrow for my boss. And I need you to give me the space to do that, she answers curtly. Article on dating? What? She eats everything in the house, and then she falls asleep on the sofa with her shoes on, her antic perambulations memorialized by muddy boot prints. She sleeps till noon the next day. Up since four, I've already written an essay, caught up on emails, and continued work on a book proposal. She showers for an hour, leaving the bathroom smelling like synthetic grapefruit and ovulation. Her body is so robust so flush with brightly oxygenated blood that it feels offensive to this quiet little corner I have cultivated, to my orchids and old books in tremulous piles. Why are you working so hard, she scolds. And I explain my books, my projects, the sense of urgency my glitchy body has gifted to me. God, I mean, I guess I wanna write a book. Maybe I'll go get an MFA, she muses while clipping her nails onto the floor. I wonder what I'll write about. I'm stunned at the inability to summon a cause, a spark of creative need. I have never once wondered what to write about. I have never once felt I could defer an idea for even an hour. It takes several days for me to realize how much she sheds. Crumbs, potato chips, tumbleweeds of hair that her long mane can spare to lose. Nail filings so healthy they could be used as a mouse's scimitar. Candy wrappers, cigarette butts. She smokes in the house the first day I leave her alone. We have a screaming match. From then on, she compromises and smokes out the window. She lives on sugar and coffee. She talks loudly to friends on the phone while I try to resolve medical debt online, try to schedule an appointment with a new nutritionist, try to get my medical records faxed from one hospital to another. When these conversations end, she tells me she hates these people. She tells me about her job writing beauty and wellness articles for an online feminist magazine, 
and how idiotic she finds her peers. Her job pays her to attend spas and wellness retreats, writing snarky tell-all reports with pastel graphics. I try to normalize the situation, given my knowledge of family systems and trauma therapy. We must include all versions of the self. We must integrate that, that which we have exiled and bring it back into wholeness. Is she a manifestation of my trauma? I should be empathic. I should work harder to understand her. Several weeks into her stay, I cook us a beautiful dinner, salmon and broccoli. But she stands me up, staying out until midnight, telling me she's reconnected with a married man she used to work for. Why, you're too old for that, I exclaim, still going to the fridge to retrieve her cold meal, getting her a glass of water, feeling sympathy perhaps because she looks like me, she is me. Don't you want partnership, a family? Yuck. She responds to both me and to the food. I'm too young for that. I want a life worth, worth writing about. I'm not ready to be tied down to something yet. A life worth writing about is not necessarily an easy life. It's soothing, if unsayable, to be simple and undramatic. It can be good to be tied to something. I try carefully, feeling my own longing uncurl and rearrange itself in my chest like a drowsy cat. It feels good to care for other people and to know that their care keeps you alive. It's what trees and fungi do. It's what animals do. We do our best living in community. Her eyes are glazed and blue with the light of her phone. I mean, I get it. I'm lonely. Are you? I probe. I'm not. I mean, I long for a partner, but I feel held by friends. I have more friends than you, she sniffles, still not looking up from her phone. I just don't like them very much. You never call mom or dad or Jonah, I say. You never come with me to see the family or the cousins. Uh, well, I'll see them next month for the holidays. That's enough. I can't get rid of her and I can't clean up after her. She emits a toxic miasma of Santal 33, teenage locker room and tobacco smoke that adheres to surfaces like cooking grease. It's a virile smell, loathsome. You feel as if it could impregnate your very pores with demon spawn. She watches long French movies in the living room, ashing into the Monstera plant. She never cooks and yet manages to leave behind half-eaten food everywhere. She makes fun of my early bedtime my discussions of impending environmental collapse, my friends, my exercise and physical therapy routines. I juice parsley. I watch videos about EMDR and psychedelic assisted trauma therapy. I do a holotropic breathing session alone in my bedroom while she makes out with a shaggy haired barista in the kitchen. It isn't until she steals my phone and calls my Midwestern ex-fiance and meets up with him for dinner that I really lose my shit. He said that you were just too sick for him. Too intense, too focused on your work, she taunts me. He told me you were uptight and radical and crazy. I narrow my eyes, finally sharpened into certainty. Look, I say to her, to myself, I know you are me, that you're some version of me, but I've decided I don't want what the trauma therapists say. I don't think I can integrate you into my life. I don't think this is working. To my surprise, she smiles, reveal revealing small, polished, straight teeth. But I'm the person you're trying to get back to all the time. I'm the person you're trying to find and to remember how to be. The world tilts. My body, prone to postural tachycardia, knows to sit down, to lean into the vertigo rather than to resist it. I'm confused. What do you mean? 
She sits beside me so that the comparison is unavoidable. Our bodies are mismatched tuning forks, one prong straight, the other bent, disharmonic. She has better posture, better color, her skin candlelit, her hands manicured, free of bubbled veins and tissue paper scarring. Haven't you ever wondered what you'd be like if you hadn't been abused as a child, if you hadn't been traumatized? Haven't you ever wondered what you'd be like if your genetic illness had never been turned on? She draws my hand to her face, stroking her own velveteen softness with my fingers. I'm the well you. I'm the healthy you. I'm the you without trauma. I'm the person you could have been and could still be if you fixed yourself, if you finally worked hard enough to heal yourself. My veins stiffen into a vasculature of wood. I feel planted, vegetal. My hand against her human face is not a hand. It is a sheen of mildew, the obdurate green of undergrowth, lacquer of lichen on a tombstone. I retract from her sunshine, her lonely and immaculate selfhood. I retract back into the root system I share with the many beings I depend on to keep my disabled, non-normative body alive. Get out, I say, get out. I am the healthy you. I am your wellness. I am your origin and your goal, she insists. If you reject me, you are rejecting healing and abundance. You will never be complete. It takes me a long time to say it. I muster it with every microbial cell of my chimerical body as I push her towards the door. If this is wellness, I don't want it. If this is healing, I refuse it. It takes me my whole life to realize I've been haunted, not by trauma, not by abuse, but by the idea that there was another version of me, a well version, a normal version, an untraumatized body, a Garden of Eden body, free of trespass, somehow walking alongside my hobbled form, taunting me with her agility and ease. I never considered that to be well inside systems of oppression that snare most bodies is not necessarily a marker of canniness or ingenuity. It is not necessarily a marker of good character or revolutionary verve or of the ability to improvise with the tectonic cultural and geological shifts to come. I want to suggest that we are all haunted, not by flashbacks and memories, but by an imaginary idea of wholeness by the idea that there is a normal body that renders our body deviant, that there is another version of us that somehow escaped the fire, slipped loose the noose of generational trauma, violence, and illness, that we must spend our every waking hour, our hard-earned money, our dedicated spiritual and physical focus striving towards. We do not bring in priests to exercise this ghost. Instead, we make it our Holy Spirit. We sacrifice our lives, our time, our money, our attention at the altar of a body that never existed, a version of us we might, if we met them, not want to be. Trauma has become akin to sin in its original Hebraic formulation, meaning to miss the mark. It is seen as a dead end that forks off from the straight highway, the deviation, the wrong turn, the wrong self. And the way we talk about it reveals its theological undertones. In fact, the cataphatic impulse to name everything as trauma rearticulates the medieval impulse to circumscribe God through intellectual acrobatics. Just as medieval theologians poured over scripture seeking God, so are we paranoid readers of our own bodies, taking any symptom as a sign that might lead back to Genesis, the original traumatizing event, the God we can only see through the bubbles he creates on the surface of the ocean. 
The hunger to locate and explain trauma might be a hunger for a God of matter, a God who cares little for our value dualisms, who uses our own bodies as instruments, a God big enough for chaos and collapse. We strive towards the healed body like we strive towards Eden. But as we walk towards Eden, we find we are not actually walking towards a utopian garden, but into the molten wound of a crater, the Chicxulub crater to be exact, created when an asteroid hit the earth, causing an extinction event that decimated the dinosaurs and killed 75% of all life, opening up the real estate, the ecological niches that proto-mammalian life would rush to fill. It was that crater that opened up the space for us to bloom and finally produced our humanoid bodies. We're the product, not of a garden, but of an impact, an extinction event. We're the children of the crater, the bodies produced by collision and eruption. The well body and the Edenic utopia function similarly. They are advertised as universal, but are always partial. They are always produced by some other being's dystopia. Wellness is built from unwellness. Utopia depends on and produces dystopia. Blood pressure stabilizers, diabetic drugs, and antidepressants keep our bodies up, upright while also polluting river water. A medication is produced by context, and no substance we produce stays in its correct place for long. It leaks physically and ontologically, producing hells when it was created to stabilize anthropocentric normativity. All is pharmacon. Contextual, leaky, slipping between potion and poison, unpredictably. For beings that date the beginning of the universe to a bang, should we not expect that we feel the bang, that original combustion, the detonated hurl of body against another body, the making of bodies by slamming bodies together in our very matter? Collision, an impact, an interpenetration, matter conjugated, this is the calculus of world building. It is also language we would readily identify as relating to trauma and trespass. Let me ask, what unwellness is my wellness built from? What dystopias do I unwittingly produce as I fixate on my personal completion, my physical and psychic wholeness? What new shapes do I preclude when I refuse to collaborate with indigestibility, with unknowability, with incursions and otherness? What beings, what possible futures and worlds have been sac sacrificed to produce my med medicine? And what is my healing for? We are told that health is independence, that care is self-oriented, that, that health is an individual operation. The focus on the traumatized individual has made us paranoid readers of our own bodies. We keep the score rather than playfully, wildly playing a game that cares little for individual players and more about the game itself and its ability to continue infinitely. Here today I say it, I will not worship at the altar of healing. I will be incorrect. I will let my joints sublux, opening up spaces for fungal incursions. I will take the wrong path. I will hobble myself into holiness, stumble my way to the sacred. I will honor my body as a material refusal to participate in this egocidal culture. I will let my mouth atrophy as I photosynthesize with algal symbionts. I will fuse my roots to your roots. I do not want to heal. I want to survive. And survival is never safe. It is always a breach, a break in the skin. It is a leap across the abyss, the moment when you leap into another body. Thanks. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, 
and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAN content, available exclusively to SAN members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.